standing for the reading of Scripture this morning. You'll find that in the Gospel of St. Mark, chapter 2, as we return and continue the exposition of Mark's Gospel, this morning coming to verses 18 through 22. Mark, chapter 2, beginning in verse 18. Let us hear and attend to the Word of God. The disciples of John and of the Pharisees were fasting. Then they came and said to him, Why do the disciples of John and of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the friends of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, or else the new, pulls, the new piece pulls away from the old, and the tear is made worse. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins, or else the new wine bursts the wineskins, the wine is spilled, and the wineskins are ruined. But new wine must be put into new wineskins. And we'll end our reading of the Holy Scriptures there this morning. Please be seated. Throughout the Bible, in both the Old Testament and the New Testament, covenant marriage is used as a progressively revealed motif of the most intimately real relationship between God the Creator as Lord and Savior and His redeemed people. This covenant marriage motif reaches its greatest celebration in the application of Jesus Christ as the bridegroom, the royal bridegroom of Psalm 45, so beautifully displayed there and throughout Scripture, and Jesus referencing Himself as the anointed one of God, the King, and the bridegroom of the church. And the church is represented as his purified and beautified bride. We're told that that's what Jesus is doing as he uh, brings us to consummation. That we are a part of the church, the bride of Christ, being purified and being uh, beautified by the righteousness of Christ. Um, Caution, though, needs to be taken. Because um, there is, I think, an attempt sometimes to elaborate and to read back into uh, human marriage about the church as the bride of Christ motif. So there is not a strict parallel. There is not a direct carryover from what the Bible says about God's creation ordinance of marriage and particularly uh, covenant marriage and especially Christian covenant marriage. There is not a direct parallel and carryover and application of the uh, relationship between Christ as the bridegroom and the church as his bride. Chiefly, that is to be understood in that marriage, covenant marriage, and Christian covenant marriage is not a sacrament. It is not a means of grace. Now, no matter how strongly we defend biblical marriage and the integrity of biblical marriage, and how we hold on to what the Bible says about Christian covenant marriage, that Christians should marry Christians and shouldn't marry unbelievers. And sometimes people think that that's uh, being harsh or or being exclusive. Uh, But for Christian believers, it's a matter of faith and obedience and believing what God says about the nature of marriage. But what we have to understand and what we need to be clear about is that though we defend and though we honor and though we um, have a, a protective regard for Christian covenant marriage, marriage is not a sacrament. Marriage is not a means of grace. And what do we mean by that? Is that a Christian spouse cannot redeem and does not have redemptive powers through marriage for another spouse. But in Christian covenant marriage, 
The Bible tells us that believing spouses are a sanctifying presence and even a covenant blessing in reference even to covenant children. So there's some wonderful things that the Bible tells us about Christian covenant marriage, new covenant marriage. We have to be very careful that we don't mistakenly try to make marriage something that it's not. Marriage is not a sacrament. The relationship between Jesus as the bridegroom and the church as his bride, that is a redemptive relationship. And marriage is used as a motif. But we need to be careful to see and hold to the differences there. Now, I bring all that up because in this uh, context here in Mark chapter 2, and, and again, I want to say I think this is the value of doing expository preaching, we come to this passage where Jesus identifies himself as the bridegroom, as the royal bridegroom in that motif of uh, the covenant marriage that elevates and finds its highest celebration between Christ as the royal bridegroom and the church as his bride, his redeemed bride. But here in chapter 2, verses 18 through 22, we go on in the Gospel of Mark with straight talk about Jesus Christ. And here we've seen the theme that's been developed in chapter 2, that the Son of Man, as Christ the Son of God, the Son of Man has divine authority and power on earth to redirect celebrating and rejoicing and fasting and sorrowing, anticipating the new covenant gospel, celebrating uh, celebrated as it is the Messianic wedding feast as a part of that motif that we were talking about and that's used as, with rich imagery in Scripture about the marriage supper of the Lamb, celebrating the Messianic wedding feast, this Lord's Supper a, 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 as a token and demonstration and, a, and uh, a promise to us that the feast is coming. So in verse 18, you'll see the disciples of John, that is John the baptizer, and of the Pharisees were fasting. Then they came and said to Jesus, Why do the disciples of John and of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Now questions about religious fasting need heavenly answers on earth. Uh, I've served in the Christian ministry now for going on almost 40 years. And I can tell you that over those years, one of the uh, common questions that I have been asked is about fasting. Uh, people want to know about fasting. They're, they're interested. They're concerned. They, they wonder about it. And so we need heavenly answers about fasting on earth. And Jesus gives us some here this morning. There's more in Scripture about it, but I want us to see carefully what the Lord Jesus says here. All fasting is not religious fasting. You you probably know that. Maybe you've had to have a medical test, and you were told that you needed to fast for 24 hours for a length of time uh, before that medical test. So all fasting is not religious fasting. But some fasting is even for false spiritual claims associated with philosophy. It's not just religions that uh, practice fasting. There are philosophies. Uh, Chiefly among them is a a misguided philosophy that sometimes gets brought even into the church called dualism. Uh, Dualism is a pagan belief that somehow the limitations and restrictions of the body, that the body is inherently limited or even evil. And by that limitation, we have to try to somehow find a way that we can translate out of this limitation. So often fasting is a way that is used even philosophically for people to try to get outside of themselves. Uh, So there can be literal fasting or there can be various uh, intellectual and and, uh, emotional aspects, psychological uh, aspects to some kind of attempt to transcend the limitations of the body. That's false. That, that is, is not biblically based, and it misleads people. 
And people, of course, attempt to do this, and they come up with all manner of foolishness uh, that they attempt to gain some kind of superior uh, spirituality from, trying to escape the limitations of being human. But God created us as human, and we never escape that. Uh, We either are transformed and renewed to Him and new humanity through Christ, or we will bear the judgment of God against our sin as humans and His creatures in rebellion and judgment against Him. So, all religious, all fasting is not religious fasting, but all religious fasting is not valid as New Covenant Gospel fasting. I don't know if you know this, a lot of times people just assume that uh, fasting is from an Old, an Old Testament uh, requirement of God, that this is how God really was severe on people and how he, he, he kept them under his thumb and he required fa- You know there was only one required fast under the Old Covenant? That was on the Day of Atonement. Other fasts could be in, entered into voluntarily. Uh, we know and have examples of, of fasting. But there was only one required fast day, and that was the Day of Atonement. As a matter of fact, um, other fasts could not be kept for a, a length of time if you participated in the Old Covenant Messianic or, or the Old Covenant Mosaic regulations in terms of offering sacrifices and, and eating and, and being a part of re- receiving those sacrifices. So uh, we have sometimes a very misguided notion about fasting. We think it's some oppressive, oppressive way that God was trying to keep his thumb on people. But that's not true to what Scripture says. So the disciples of John the Baptizer and the disciples of the Pharisees had conflicting motivations for fasting, knowing about what they believed and even the examples we have elsewhere in Scripture about the Pharisees fasting and how for them it was a a self-righteous thing. They were very much like the dualism trying to show that they had power over their bodies and that they were going to purify themselves by their self-righteousness. And Jesus spoke in condemnation about that. That's not right fasting. And the disciples of John, from what we know of John the baptizer, uh, we would assume that their fasting was an exercise in devotion. And the Bible does not condemn that. It just limits and restricts it. So valid New Covenant gospel fasting is not a means of grace. It's not sacramental. Remember what I said about marriage is not a sacrament? You need to understand fasting is not a sacrament. As a matter of fact, you can't keep the Lord's Supper and keep a fast. I'm going to have more to say about that as we go on. You're called this morning in faith, if you profess faith in Jesus Christ, if you have identified with Him in baptism, you are called to partake of this Lord's Supper as a blessing. It is a means of grace. Fasting is not. We need to be careful about that because oftentimes we come with mixed uh, motives and concerns about the Lord's Supper. We think we'll come to the Lord's Supper to prove our worthiness or we think that we'll come giving God something. But no, it is the Lord who's giving us something. In this Lord's Supper. That's why it's by the words of institution that it's set apart. You, you can take bread, unleavened bread. You eat pita bread. You ever have a, 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 a unleavened bread as part of your meal? Or perhaps you drink juice or wine with a meal? That's not the Lord's Supper. And it's my conviction that we cannot uh, substitute other things in the elements of the Lord's Supper. You say, well, what if, I've heard this was actually given as an argument for, what if you were marooned on a desert island and all you had was fish and coconut milk? Could you have the Lord's Supper? You can have devotion to Christ. You can bow your head and thank God for supplying the coconut milk and the fish. But you don't have the Lord's Supper. And your salvation is not so bound up in this bread and wine that you have to have the Lord's Supper in order to be saved. You can be marooned on a desert island and worship God and know the hope of your salvation. And you can long to say, one day, Lord, 
If I am rescued, to return and to sup with you and the people of God. If not, then I'll have the marriage supper of the Lamb in heaven. You see, we, we live by faith. We don't live by works. We need to understand these things for what they are. So valid new covenant gospel fasting is not a means of grace. It's an act of devotion in connection with the Holy Spirit's intercession in agreement with the word and the will of our Heavenly Father. That's what we're instructed about uh, fasting. If we are going to keep a fast, it is for devotion unto God. We're not even really to, to let it be known publicly. Uh, it's something we keep privately. And we, t- we give that time in devotion to prayer and to meditation and to seeking uh, the word and the will of God rather than having a meal. And it's not because a meal is physical and therefore uh, limited and therefore sinful or that because our bodies are sinful, we've got to purify our soul. You will never purify your sins by not eating something. What did, what did Jesus tell Peter? Arise and eat. Lord, I've never eaten anything unclean. I'm telling you, you eat it now because you're not purified by what goes into your body, what goes into your stomach. What did Jesus say? It's not what goes into the mouth and goes down into the stomach and is eliminated through your sin. That's not what corrupts you. It's the sin in your heart. That's what must be purified. You cannot purify your own heart no matter how much you fast. When Jesus was driven into the wilderness to fast 40 days, remember we saw that in chapter 1. It wasn't he was trying to purify himself or to try to escape his humanity. I told you, he went on an assault mission against the devil. He was weakened in his flesh because of his fasting, but in the spirit, he defeated the enemy. He destroyed the devil, and he sent him packing. So we need to have right ideas and understanding about this matter of fasting. That's why Jesus was asked here about it. And his answer is so curious, isn't it? I hope you're piqued by curiosity. Why did Jesus answer this way? Before we go on, though, I do want to reference a portion of the Westminster Confession of Faith that I think is really helpful here. Uh, This is from chapter 21 on the worship of God. The reading of scriptures with godly fear, the sound preaching and conscionable hearing of the word in obedience unto God, with understanding, faith, and reverence, singing of psalms with grace in the heart, as also the due administration and worthy receiving of the sacraments instituted by Christ. That means baptism and the Lord's Supper are all parts of the ordinary religious worship of God. Now, that's not a bad phrase. That means the customary, the ongoing, those ordinary uh, things that God has given us. They're made special to us in terms of the worship of God, but they're regular. Maybe rather than ordinary, we would say the regular worship of God. Besides Besides these regular worship of God, religious oaths, vows, solemn fastings, and thanksgivings upon special occasions which are in their several uh, times and seasons to be used in a holy and religious manner. Based upon what Scripture tells us, and and even uh, what we read in Colossians this morning and elsewhere, there are also occasional times that we may have uh, uh, special services, we might say. Uh, We don't hear of it very often, but in time past, there were public uh, fasts were called. Now, it wasn't mandatory. It was something that was called for people to voluntarily participate in. Or Thanksgiving, times of, of a special Thanksgiving. When we have Thanksgiving service. And I don't mean just the holiday Thanksgiving. I mean when there's maybe a special time we come together and want to devote ourselves to Thanksgiving to the Lord. We, we often talk about how we pray and we intercede and we're begging, we're asking God. But we also need to be equally uh, concerned about how we restore Thanksgiving and how we acknowledge blessing uh, to keep those things uh, you know, together. Um, so there are times for occasional Type services. 
that are recognized and that are uh, validated by Holy Scripture uh, to be to be distinguished from the regular and the ordinary practices of our public worship. Let's go on then in verse 19 because the question is asked Jesus about fasting. And then let's see what Jesus says here in verse 19. And Jesus said to them, Can the friends of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. So celebrating God's promised salvation by his appointed means of grace through personal faith and public worship is greater than fasting. This is why I said that I think Jesus' answer here is very curious. We want a a, a routine, don't we? We want Jesus to tell us, well, okay, this is how how you're supposed to fast. Um, Okay, you come together and you're going to come together and uh, observe the Lord's Supper on the Lord's Day. But then on this day of the week, you can fast. Or or we go through all these uh, guidelines. We want Jesus to be prescriptive to us and to tell us, do this and do this when it comes to fasting. Jesus doesn't do that. And that should get our attention. Because Jesus talks about something different. Rather than giving us some kind of regulations about fasting, Jesus references God's promised salvation and how that's supposed to be celebrated. How do we celebrate God's salvation? We celebrate it God's way. Through personal faith and public worship. And do you know worshiping, coming together in public worshiping, uh, our communing together at the Lord's table, that is greater than fasting. Now I cannot emphasize this enough. Because we live in a time, and this is not the only time, but we do live in a time when so much emphasis is put upon, I think, misguided spiritual disciplines. That somehow you have to purify yourself. Somehow you have to work up your own devotion. Somehow you have to add to what Christ has done in terms of your own righteousness. And regularly we are told that somehow we've got to figure out some mechanism by which we can become holier. And we are neglecting the means of grace in which Christ makes us holy. And so here we have what Scripture is telling us by Jesus Himself that personal faith and public worship is greater than fasting. Now, by normal and customary uh, accepted religious and social customs, a wedding is not a time for fasting. And I think that's what's interesting about Jesus' answer here when He referenced Himself as the bridegroom. Jesus is referencing that motif, that covenant motif of covenant marriage, identifying himself as the royal uh, uh, bridegroom. And so in his answer to the question about fasting, he talks about celebrating a wedding. And his point is this, that the wedding is not the time to fast. When Jesus was asked by his disciples... uh, why he uh, did not fast in verse 18. By answer, he identifies himself as the Messianic bridegroom. We really need to focus on that. That's where Jesus is bringing the attention. Not on fasting as some way that we can become holier, but rather on who Jesus is and what, what benefit, what blessing, what assurance we have from who he is as he identifies himself as the Messianic bridegroom. Now, Jesus emphasizes his presence as the Messianic bridegroom among friends. But we know that in terms of solitary fasting, Jesus taught that that could still be observed. So Jesus is not in conflict with what he taught elsewhere here. He's telling us what is the greater emphasis. He, as the royal bridegroom and celebrating God's salvation in terms of the covenant marriage motif, 
How it is that God the Creator is in union, in the most intimate, wonderful connection and communion and union with His redeemed people. is like a, a, a bridegroom and His bride. He uses that motif. And Jesus identifies Himself as the Messianic bridegroom, telling us that this is greater. This is something more great to celebrate. But that that does not conflict that there might still be solitary fasting. So I want you to understand that, and I don't want you to think that or have, hear others say that Jesus was contradicting himself. I think we all get the difference. You might go to a wedding. You might enjoy the celebration of the wedding and all the, the food that's a part of that celebration. And then you may come back home, and there may be something burdening you or troubling you, and you may choose to miss a meal in prayer and devotions, although you celebrated the wedding. But now in private and solitary uh, devotion, you're keeping a fast. That's not a conflict. I think we all understand that. So in the context of this teaching, Jesus anticipates the new covenant fulfillment and reconciliation with the better presence of the Holy Spirit by a better public worship with better covenantal signs and seals so that celebrating the Lord's Supper is better and more effectual than fasting. I hope that sinks in. The emphasis there. Uh, is the emphasis that the New Testament Scriptures give us on what is better. What is better in Christ. What is better over the Old Covenant. The New Covenant is better than the Old Covenant. The, The working of the Holy Spirit is more evident and better than the Old Covenant. The Lord's Supper is better and more effectual than the Passover meal. Do you believe that? See, that's what I'm calling you to. That's what I'm asking you this morning. Do you believe that the new covenant in Christ, fulfilled and reconciled, God's way of salvation through reconciliation, making all things new and giving us things that are better, do you believe that that's better than you're trying to come up or even try to add to the old covenant like the Pharisees did with man-made types of regulations or man-made types of uh, practices? That's what Jesus is driving at here. And that's why he answers this question about fasting with celebrating celebrating him in faith as the Messianic bridegroom. Now look at verse 20. But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. So valid New Covenant gospel fasting is redirected to times of spiritual distress, of which the greatest was Christ's passion after the institution of the Lord's Supper, up to his voluntary death on the cross. That was a fast that Jesus kept. Jesus predicts days. You'll see here in verse uh, uh, 20, he says days are coming. He doesn't use the Greek article there, so he's, he's using a generic reference. He's saying he predicts days of spiritual distress concerning his being subjected to forceful removal. Days are coming when the bridegroom will be taken away. That uh, phrase, that taken away, is a forceful phrase. It means he'd be taken away Not voluntarily, although the Lord Jesus subjected himself and volunteered to be taken. He was forcefully taken. Those were days of distress. After the Lord uh, instituted the Lord's Supper. And then as he went out in the garden to pray and he was arrested and taken and brutalized and brought to the crucifixion. Up to the time of his resurrection. Those were days of distress. We need to really focus on that and understand the distress. Even the scripture is telling us that Jesus cried out with strong tears and fears and anxiety and, wor- and trouble and broken heartedness. Father, let this cup pass from me if it's your will. But not my will, your will be done. Amen. 
And he sweat, as it were, great drops of blood. And days of distress, these are the days that Jesus is talking about, would come. And he would be forcefully taken from them. And he would be forcefully taken. His life would be forcefully taken from him. And the death of the cross. But, of course, we understand Jesus voluntarily gave it up. But he tells us here, those specific days, he, he bookends his prediction, restating days in order not to be confused with those days of fasting with His coming resurrection and ascension. Look at verse 20 again. But days will come, days of distress will come, when the bridegroom will be taken, forcefully taken away from them, and then they will fast in those specific days. Don't confuse that with the great day of resurrection. Don't confuse that with the great day of ascension. Don't confuse that with the the day of the righteousness dawning and arising through Christ and the days of salvation. Today is the day of salvation. Believe today. That's what Scripture calls us to acknowledge. So you might remember, what did Jesus do after the resurrection? I'm going to reference this again in a moment. But do you remember what Jesus did in the upper room? When he appeared to his disciples there in resurrection presence, he ate. He broke the fast. The days of distress were over. And with them, he ate fish and honey to say, I'm real. I'm here with you, but in a greater reality than you could ever have imagined or can even fully comprehend now. At the original institution of the Lord's Supper, Jesus pledged a fast and promised to rejoin the supper among his friends in a new kingdom of God. You shouldn't miss this. Whenever we have the Lord's Supper, uh, a part of that, we're told Jesus says, I will not drink this cup again until I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. That's not put off to an indefinite future. What Jesus is saying is, I'm going to come to you in a new sacramental, in a new mystery of salvation way. And I am going to keep this supper with you I will keep this bread and I will keep this cup because in a greater reality of God's mystery of salvation, I am more real to you than these elements are to your physical senses. That is what is astounding. When we have this bread in a moment, when we take this cup, all your physical senses validate it. It's bread. It's not a slice of apple or a slice of cheese. That's either juice or uh, wine, whichever you choose. It's not Coca-Cola or orange juice. And that's what, we're not playing with words here. We're not tempting you with magic. It's just bread and it's just juice or wine. But by the words of institution, it has a greater symbolism to tell us by faith. That's why the words of institution are essential. Because by the words of institution, not some magical incantation, but by biblically revealed identity, Jesus says, I am with you. In a sacramental mystery of salvation way, greater by faith than these elements are to your physical senses. Don't doubt. Don't doubt. Jesus has broken the fast. Jesus sups with us. Jesus is real with us by faith. Greater than even these physical symbols. Now in verses 21 and 22, we come to the conclusion of this section again, which I think is so curious because Jesus says in verse 21, No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment 
or else the new piece pulls away from the old and the tear is made worse. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins or else the new wine burst the wineskins, the wine is spilled and the wineskins are ruined. But new wine must be put into new wineskins. Well, with these two homespun truisms, and, and I, I think this has uh, certainly has stood the test of time. Uh, we get what Jesus is saying here on a physical level. I mean, those, those truisms, matter of fact, uh, Luke calls them parables, so they represent something more than just talking about sewing clothes or how we cure wine. It represents something more. Jesus is talking about heavenly reality. He's revealing to us truth from heaven, but he's telling us in ways that we can, can get the, the point of what he's saying. So with these two homespun truisms, Jesus authorizes faith and worship on earth in terms of new covenant fulfillment and reconciliation for gain and not for loss. This is something we really need to get a hold of. We're not losing anything with the new covenant. We have gained so much more. But it's hard for us to see that because we look with the eyes of our flesh. We want something to be more palpable to us. We want something with more grandeur. We want something with more pizzazz. This is where we go wrong in the visible church so many times, thinking we can add to and get people's attention, thinking that we somehow can draw them in, that we can make them be more interested. Only the Holy Spirit, in obedience to what we faithfully attend to by God's means of grace, changes the heart. We cannot save people. Only God can. His way. That's the mystery of salvation. And so here, this is what Jesus is telling us. Don't miss the point. What is gained, not lost, The new covenant gospel is not religious patchwork of adding man-made novelties onto the worn-out fabric of the old covenant. Hebrews talks about this. Hebrews talks about the old covenant being like a garment that's worn out, completely worn out, and and folded up and put away. It's no longer of use. It can't be serviceable. You can't simply come and patch it up. If you try to patch it up, it's going to completely rip apart. The old covenant cannot contain the fulfillment of the new covenant. Beloved, I don't have the skill. I wish I did. I trust the Holy Spirit of God to take the truth into your hearts and minds of what we have gained in the new covenant through Christ and all the sufficiency and that by faith is pledged to us and promised for what Christ reveals of Himself. And so we haven't lost anything, but what we've gained is uh, beyond compare. And so any attempts to try to simply patch up the old covenant, any attempts to try to add on Christianity to uh, the old covenant, any attempt to continue old covenant Judaism as a baptized Christian kind of subset is going to fail. It's going to fall apart. It cannot stand up. It will rip apart. Every time historically that has been tried, it rips apart. Because it is not ordained of God. And that's what Jesus is talking about here. This old garment is the old covenant. It's worn out. You can't simply patch it up with trying to add on uh, Christian things to the old covenant. Please understand that. Please see it as a new garment. Please see it as the robes of the righteousness of Christ. Please see it as spectacular and all-sufficient. And don't try to add to it old covenant and man-made ways of of self-righteousness.
So Jesus is talking even about the Pharisees and their self-righteousness here. How they would not accept the new covenant and how they tried to patch up the old covenant. It will inevitably rip apart. And then he talks about the wineskins and the new wine. The new covenant gospel is not a loss from the old covenant, but the new and better wine requiring new wineskins. Now, here is another quote from the Westminster Confession that I think you know, speaks to this very beautifully about the new wine and the new wineskins. And what the point is that Jesus makes is if you put the new wine in the old wineskins, when it ferments, it'll burst the old wineskins. The wine will be spilled and the wineskins will be ruined. It doesn't work. You can't do that. You cannot contain the new covenant gospel in these old wineskins of old covenant worship. There is a a new, a totally new wineskin that's cured out and it receives the new wine and it holds it and it makes it the best of all. And so from the Westminster Confession, here's a beautiful application. Under the gospel, when Christ the substance was exhibited, the ordinances in which this covenant is dispensed are the preaching of the word and the administration of the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper, which though fewer in number and administered with more simplicity and less outward glory, yet in them is held forth in more fullness, evidence, and spiritual spiritual efficacy to all nations, all peoples, both Jews and Gentiles, and is called the New Testament, the New Covenant Gospel. Yes, it's, they're fewer in number. The preaching of the Word is despised, but it is empowered by God as God's power of salvation. God has ordained preaching. The foolishness of preaching to save sinners. And the administration of baptism in the Lord's Supper, identified by the words of institution from Scripture, are attended by the Holy Spirit because that's God's way, because that's what God has appointed. That uh, uh, that witnesses to Christ. And that's what God uses uh, effectually. Not what we make up, not what we do, not what we enhance, not that we want to add to it some kind of more spectacular demonstration. No, in more simplicity, but greater efficacy and power because it's attended by the Holy Spirit of God. Because it's about God's way of salvation, not about our adding on to what the Scriptures teach or what Jesus has done. So, in concluding this section of Jesus' teaching and His power on earth as the Son of God fulfilling the role of uh, the anointed one, the son of man. In the new covenant gospel, uh, in other words, the new, custom, new, the new covenant gospel breaks the fast days of Jesus' death. Jesus is no longer keeping a fast. So it, the new covenant gospel, by the resurrection, breaks the fast days of Jesus' death and by his resurrection gives new robes of Christ's righteousness as wedding garments. You know about that. You know where the scriptures talk about the parables of the wedding feast. You know where the scriptures talk about being clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Put off the old man. Put on the new man that's made according to God in true righteousness and holiness. You know that imagery and that application that's used throughout scripture. That it is through the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ and his ascension to heaven. That we receive the greater and fuller gift of the Holy Spirit of God. And the transferred righteousness of Christ is clothing us and covering us. And we are welcomed into the wedding feast. And there's a new wine of the Holy Spirit's new harvest from Jesus, the vine of life. 
This is the, the, the symbolism of the wine, that Jesus is the vine of life. We must be livingly united to Him in faith. And it's the sweet wine of the new wine and the new wineskins of a fulfilled and reconciled way of worshiping God. That new and fulfilled and reconciled way of worshiping God by the promise of His salvation comes by personal faith in Jesus Christ, identifying with Him publicly and worshiping Him publicly according to His will as is regulated by Scripture. And that's what Jesus is talking about here in this section about when He's approached about fasting and somehow that's a way to make yourself holy. No, you can't do it. What you need to do is celebrate what Jesus has done in fulfilling the fast and what Jesus has done in breaking the fast and what Jesus is doing as the bridegroom, the royal bridegroom of His church and how we are clothed in new garments of righteousness and how we have the new wine of Jesus, the vine of life. So as the Lord Jesus addresses this question about fasting, I hope that you will pay attention to His answer and that you might find joy and delight in the promise of faith and that you will come this morning and receive this Lord's Supper as a gift from God of what Jesus is saying, fast no more. And that doesn't mean that we don't have private fast from time to time. But it means this taking of the Lord's Supper in faith is greater than fasting. This Lord's Supper is appointed by Christ to build our faith and to assure our hope and to tell us that Jesus is more real to us. This Lord's Supper as a means of grace, appointed by Christ and identified by His Word, is more effectual than fasting. This is God's way of holiness. This is God's way of salvation. As we seek the Lord to prepare our hearts for this Lord's Supper, we'll turn to Him number 300.